what some people may or may not know is that I fell into movie reviewing quite by accident. So when I was in high school, the Australian Film Institute ran a young film critics competition and I have my mum's from Singapore so I have what I like to refer to as Asian work ethic so I entered four times <laughs> I, I, I've got to check if I've got some Asian in my background because I have got that as well seriously um, so I entered four times and I they told me that I won I was like does this mean I say I can say I had an AFI award and they're like no don't say that that's a lie but I stumbled into community radio and I said look I can do graphic design by day and I can review movies by night and they I did graphic design for them. They said, that's terrible, don't do that. (laughs) And they taught me radio from scratch and then I was approached by SBS when David and Margaret – so David and Margaret did the movie show for Mm -hmm. a gazillion years on SBS. They got the shits with that and they walked. And I got this call from SBS going, do you want to come in and have a meeting? I'm like, sure, what about? This is before David and Margaret had announced anything. Mm. And so I went in and I met with this producer and we talked about everything and nothing and then I left And the next day, David and Margaret announced that they're leaving to go to the ABC. And I get this call back from the producer going, you should send in a video application. I'm like, for what? Oh, they're going to recast the movie show. In the back of my head, I'm thinking, it's a terrible idea. No (laughs) one's going to watch that show without David and Margaret. I was right. And um, they had put me on this show. And it was like, I was, the day we were unveiled to the press was my 19th birthday. Wow. And I didn't tell anybody until that day and I kind of casually mentioned, oh, it's my birthday. And they're like, oh, great, how old are you? And I said, I'm 19. And they went pink. They had assumed I was 22, 23, something like that. And um, it was this incredible opportunity where I'd been plucked from community radio and put on a reasonably high-profile product for SBS. Mm. And uh, it was a really unpleasant experience in the end because they rushed the show out and uh, I was young and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I would write scripts, admittedly bad scripts, and they would always push it to be more academic and a little bit more highbrow and a little bit more film critic-y. And I Mm. I really braced at it. really didn't enjoy it at all. And so when that show ended, I Triple J approached me to do some sort of um, little segments on their nighttime show. I just made a really clear decision that I wanted it I wanted to have a really clear image in my head of who I was talking to. And it was 15-year-old Wayne from Wagga. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know I wanted to make sure that I could whatever movie I wanted to talk about, whether it was highbrow, lowbrow, uh, blockbuster, art house, I wanted to make sure that I would find a way that I could talk to him about anything. And that was sort of how I started thinking about it. And so everything was reverse engineered from 15-year-old Wayne from Wagga, from the length to the the sort of the energy of it to um, thinking about hooks and all mm. that sort of stuff. All of that was reversed from 15-year-old Wayne from Wagga. And so it was, it, was, it was really me reacting to like this, you know, great opportunity in the form of the movie show but not a very good experience. Mm. And that was a, a really key part of how that, that sound developed. I think that's an interesting point about big opportunities that come before you're ready. Like you Mm. aren't never going to say no. And I was actually talking to Lee Sales about this the other day where, you know, she said sometimes presenters get very big roles or journalists get very big roles and and she feels like as a boss you should say to that person, no, 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 I'm not going to offer that to them. I'm going to send you to Dubbo to work as a general news person to get the experience because it's kind of hard having that tough experience Mm. at 19 when you think, wow, big opportunity, this is going to be amazing, and then sort of really quickly all of these dreams and thoughts of what you thought of it, you're like, oh, it's broken. (laughs) It's not what I thought. It's happened a few times where um, I think because I've I've been very lucky and I've had a lot of really surprising and unusual opportunities that haven't happened to people before or after me, my my expectation game has shifted a lot over the years. And, look... 
A lot of why the movie show didn't work wasn't because of me. I was a tiny segment in the middle of a show. But I think these sorts of experiences make up the tapestry of your life experience. So I wouldn't, I don't regret anything about it. But it does take you a while to recognise what the lesson you learn from it is. Mm. I was so unhappy and frustrated with that job because here I was with a gig that people, kids my age, would kill for and I would do it and I would write a script and I would hate the script that I ended up reading to autocue and I just hated it. And it was, it was very hard to explain to people why it didn't work. So I'm eternally grateful that they hired me and, I, you know, I, I have a long relationship with SBS that continues to this day but... It was a just an incredible challenge to make sense in my mind why I wasn't enjoying the job, but I had to respect the opportunity. And Triple J, and the lessons you take from that, you really, um, it was really what made Triple J work. I, I was going into it when they made the offer, I was so clear about what I wanted it to sound like. And it's funny going back because obviously when I ended, I went back and I <laughs> went into the back end of the ABC system. I pulled everything I've ever done, so I've got an archive of it. <laughs> and I went back to listen to the like the old 2006, 2007 reviews. And firstly, I sound even more high pitched and nasal <laughs> than I do now. But I was struck by how much, in some ways, it hadn't changed. Yeah, like the structure of it was, you know, it, I put ninety percent of my effort into that opening line because. You know, you're sandwiched in between two tracks, so you can't assume anybody cares. Mm. Nobody's looking for your review. It's not like at the movies where I'm going to tune in to see what David and Margaret think. Yeah, yeah. You have to assume people don't care and the onus is on you to find a hook. Mm-hmm. Find a hook. For, and I love that challenge. Like how do I hook people into this movie that maybe they've never heard of or how do I hook people into thinking about a movie? Uh, the, the the most fun things to do for Triple J was when you you have an opportunity to reframe a movie Magic Mike XL was sold as a certain kind of movie, but I found it to be like they were sold as like a salacious male stripper movie. I found it to be like this awesome film about different body types and sex positivity and and, and not at all how it's being sold. And I love the opportunity you get to take a movie that's being sold one way and reframe it to the audience another way. So that sort of stuff was always a really fun challenge about it. Plus I love just mixing with lots of explosions. I, I <laughs> love a good explosion. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you had a lot of uh, a lot of sound effects and bits and bobs. And actually, when you tweeted your or Facebooked your last um, the the picture when you announced that you weren't going to be doing it anymore, it's the waveform. The yeah, the waveform. <laughs> the the virtual session. Yeah, yeah. But I I was actually surprised that you did it yourself. Yeah, I've, I always do. I do everything myself. So I. But that's always the thing for me. And and some of that is a reaction to my earliest experiences because. You know, when you started in community radio, you just do everything yourself. Mm -hmm. And the movie show, I didn't. And so when it came to Triple J, I was like, I have a very clear idea about what I want this to sound like. I was trained to work in Pro Tools and I, this is how I would do it. And even to this day, if you see me do an interview on the feed on SBS Viceland, I cut that. Mm -hmm. Um, We have editors. They're wonderful. But if I go out and I interview somebody, whether it's... Tom Cruise or Zac Efron or somebody unheard of, I know what I want to be in that and I I was trained, I have the skills and I, it means I'm less of a burden on the rest of the production, I will cut that. So that's – I'm very hands-on. I believe that if you are going to do – if you're going to put something out in the world, um, own it and, 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 and make sure you're doing the best you can. That 
makes me sound like a control freak. I do collaborate with people on a bunch of other yeah. things. But sometimes when it's something very personal to you, like, no, I have the skills, I can do it. I also don't like to be, I'm the same, and I also don't like to be the person that comes into a, an editor 98 times and says, I'd rather change yes. it 98 times yes. than be that pain in the ass person that goes, mm, the explosion needs to be just a couple of decibels louder. Or like, you know, yeah. because nobody, you you just become a pain in the ass. Right. The yes. editor doesn't like it. Yes. You don't like it. I reckon it takes more time 100%. as well. hundred percent. And look, one of my best friends, um, two of my best friends actually were editors and we met on Hungry Beast, which is the show I did with um, mm. Andrew Denton for the ABC. And we used, they were two editors that were hired on the show and we, I just used to hang out with them. Wonderful friends, best friends of my life, but they would both loathe when I was a reporter on a story yeah. because I would, you know, they, they almost had to draw a line in the sand mm-hmm. <laughs> between our relationship where we're happy to be friends with Mark, go see movies with Mark, but when Mark was a reporter on a story, he was just a nightmare because I'd be I'd be finicky and I'd move things and I'd try – the worst thing is like you, you try a thing just to see what it, if it works yes. and then it doesn't yeah. and then you're like, well, why did we do that? I could have told you it didn't work. So, I mean, I'm not a great person to work – I don't think – I mean, maybe I'm, I'm underselling, but I don't think I'm a terribly fun person to work with in, in that sense. Yeah. And so I don't like to inflict that upon people when I don't – have to. Yeah, I totally hear you on that. You know, it's interesting actually having that experience um, at the movie show early. I often think those kind of uh, early traumas, I'm going to say. <laughs> Very first world traumas, to be fair. <laughs> first world traumas, but, you know, it's kind of like the the media industry version of like your parents divorcing or something. Yeah. Like it makes you grow up really quickly yeah. in that environment. So you start to realise, okay, I want to be good enough at this stuff that I can sit in a room and feel like I have a reason to fight for this. Or I want to be able to put that stuff together myself so that I don't have to rely on an editor and lose creative control. So it actually it actually teaches you all of those things that now mean you're a competent all-round performer that can do your own stuff and make your own work. But having those lessons early, you know, yeah. obviously you're in, you've got the Asian work, work yeah. ethic anyway, <laughs> but it's a, I think it's a good lesson though tough, to have early on. That is undeniably true. That said, the insecurity that it bled into further jobs was super unhelpful. So the way Hungry Beast came about, which is a show I did for ABC One a couple of years ago. P.S. I am loving that I have pages of questions and I don't have to ask a single one. You are taking me already. Am We've I? done the AFI Outstanding Young Film Award, Critic Award in high school question. We've gone into Hungry Beast. We're covering off the movie stuff. I'm loving this. Okay, let's go. So what what happened with uh, um, Hungry Beast was that I I had got this job at Triple J. It was great, but it really only was one day a week. Yeah. So I had had like one career plan as like become the movie review of a Triple J and then had nothing. And so hang on, let's just quickly yeah. rewind before we go on to Hungry Beast then. Was that your plan like from the days of you doing that AFI award entry? Yeah, basically. So right. I, so I, the, when I'd started at FBI, which was the community radio station, I'd been doing these little two-minute reviews. I, I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, and I had my eye set on Triple J. I had no idea how to get there. The, the, what happened was the movie show, the woman who did, um, on the movie show, there was a cast of four of us. One of them was Megan Spencer, who was the woman who had done it before me. And she was thinking about leaving and she basically said to Triple J, this is my understanding, you should take Mark. And that was how I ended up with that that job. 
so I had a, that was the way I sort of ended up in in the gig. That was a really confusing way of me telling that story. Was that was the award in high school that came before you went to FBI? Oh yeah, yeah. So yes. the award in high school was like two thousand two. So I graduated in two thousand two. FBI I started in two thousand three. I deferred uni um, and never went back. Basically, mm-hmm. when the movie show happened. Did the FBI thing, did you? Did they um, approach you or did you say, hey, I want to no, do movie reviews for you guys? On, so You've I, said, I'll do the graphic design and the movie review. Yeah. You've gone and pitched to them. Right. Yeah, so I was, uh, yeah, I was 17 and I had finished school and I screwed up my university preferences so I took a year off and I was looking for things. Uh, I was doing graphic design, web design for people and I basically was doing what a good 17-year-old does. I looked for good websites to plagiarise. <laughs> and I came across FBI and I was like, and they were looking for volunteers. They hadn't started broadcasting uh, permanently yet, so they were still off the air. And I was oh, like, wow. so I walked in and went, look, I can, um, I can review movies. I have this award from the AFI, not an AFI award, <laughs> an award from the AFI, let's be clear. Also, I can do graphic design. And they basically took me in and, and they taught me. There was a lot of really talented people at, at FBI at that time that were doing training for people, people that had come from uh, mostly Triple J, ABC sort of people that um, had gotten jack of working for the ABC and decided to be to work on something from the ground up. And they just took me in as a 17-year-old with no experience. And you couldn't do this now, right, because there's so much competition to get into places like FBI that mm. was not there at that time. So a lot of this is about luck and and then working your ass off to justify the kismet that you have inherited, I think. Yeah. And so they basically taught me from scratch. They taught me Pro Tools from scratch. Wow. This is stuff people pay money to learn and mm. I just happened to be there at the right time and they, ta- they taught it to me and I was very lucky. I also met my wife at FBI as well. She was the arts reviewer. I was a film reviewer. Our folders in the, on the production computer were like right above each other. <laughs> it's really naff and really adorable. Um, oh, that's really cute. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so, so to fast forward, um, I... They'd got this job at Triple J, but the only way they could sort of afford to pay me full time was that I was looking after the podcasts and social media the other four days of the week. And then I did movie reviewing one day of the week. And there was a point in 2008 where I was just quite bored of dealing with the podcasting end of it because it was just cutting up Scott Dooley's show, cutting up John Safran's show, cleaning up his ums and ahs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just, it is just, it's a a boring gig, right? Mm. And so I was like, that's it. I am going to just try a bunch of things. And so I went to go see if I could get a book deal and I said I'm going to go attempt to do a comedy festival show with my mate Dan and there's this new thing that Andrew Denton's spruiking where you can come join a TV show, which I I voiced the call-out promo on Triple J for. So I'm going to apply for that. And I just had operated off the assumption that one of those things would come off and they all, all came off. Yeah. Because, I mean, my experience to date has been like, you know, there'd been a bunch of like Foxtel that approached me to do something after the movie show and these things that, you know, you think are going to happen and they all fall over, right? So my experience had taught me that try a bunch of things, one or two will come off. And that one time in history, they all came off. And so suddenly I was um, writing a book. I'd agreed to do a comedy festival show with Dan Illick in, and uh, I'd signed up to do this TV show for for, for Denton and Zapruder's other films. And, um, and Dan was doing that Dan, as well. Dan was doing mm. that as well. We applied at the same time. And um, in 2009, I learnt the meaning of bite off more than you can chew and chew like crazy. Mm, yeah. The comedy festival show was really great because I learned that I should never ever do a comedy festival show again. I'm not a comedian. It's, was, what was bad about it? No, no. Well, look, um, uh, I, it's it's not my natural rhythm to write jokes and deliver them. And we wanted to do something that was a bit high concept. And um, and 
one of the things I struggle with is that I know that there is a set group of things I can do that can make people laugh, mm-hmm. but it's a pretty short list. Yeah. And it's I get that comedy is a muscle that you can flex and you get better at it with time, but what I was interested in was saying things that made people lean in and go, oh, that's interesting, and then give them a laugh at the end. If you go into a comedy show, your expectation is inverted. What you, The baseline measure of success is gag, and then if you can add life-changing bits of information and and things on top of that, that is considered the kicker. And I realised the way I operate best is actually the other way around. I go for interesting and then add a gag on top. I'm so you are speaking my language. There's been a couple of times and, and, you know, sometimes people when I say this are like, why would you do comedy? You're not funny. But (laughs) some people have said, said, you know, you should do stand-up comedy. And for me, I say my entire MO, my my whole life has been under promise, over deliver. Yeah. So when I come into a conversation and we're having a chat and I surprise you with a laugh, you weren't expecting it. So the bar's set really low. So I can always come in above it. If you walk into a comedy show and I've said on that poster that I am a comedian, mm. the whole point of me being on that stage is that you will laugh. And that for me is too much of a high wire act because I don't know what your sense of humor is. Yeah. I can think certain things are funny and you might not, you might not read that i just don't want the you know dizzying highs and devastating lows of walking out and saying i can make you laugh because i can't guarantee that exactly and it was also hard because dan and i were doing it together and dan is so ensconced in comedy land and he knew everybody's world yeah and and i left it to dan to write you know, I, I left it to Dan to organise the whole thing. And and honestly, Dan and I were doing it as a bit of a backdoor pilot. We wanted to pitch a show that was like a, a very Charlie Brooker sort of um, piss take on the media and how the media works, which is, you know, our area of expertise, what we were interested in. And it was just an awkward fit for me. And, and I think I think he found it frustrating too. But And I, it was the other moment. It was like we were frustrated. I think we were frustrating each other a little bit. And I think we just decided that our relationship was maybe more important than than that project. And mm. um, and since then, we, we obviously did Hungry Beast together, we yeah. worked together, but it's um, in that moment it was just like I'm not totally sure this is working for either of us at, at all. And then Hungry Beast happened immediately off the back of it, so I was like, well, we don't have to worry about that, do we? <laughs> yeah. um, but the reason I brought up Hungry Beast was that... Um, that was a huge show. At the time, I remember it being it was a like strange. Show. It was a strange show, but I, 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 I mean, I remember it having a lot of attention. Maybe yeah. it was in the industry. I don't know, but I just remember being very aware of that yeah. because people said it was, it, it was just. I think anybody that didn't get on it or didn't know that you could apply for it was like, I should have applied for that show. Oh. If you if you um denied if you're listening to this and you um denied about whether or not you should apply for that show you made a mistake by not yeah. applying for it because it it was life changing mm. in good and bad ways no question so the way it worked was um, you sent in an application filled with very odd questions you'd go in you'd meet with Andrew and Andrew and Andy Neal who had created blah 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 and actually found Andrew Denton in the first place oh, wow. uh, was there and these are two fascinating guys. And basically, Andrew would enough rope you. He'd just, like, ask you enough questions to make you cry, which is the thing that Andrew <laughs> does. And um, he recruited 19 people from around the country, some of whom had made TV before, some of whom hadn't made TV before. Dan and I had assumed that we were hired as backup, basically, because we had made a fair bit of TV beforehand. And I think in the back of our minds, we'd assumed that we'd been hired because they are like, if this all goes to shit, at least Dan and Mark can make something. Mm-hmm. And so we got in there and it was... I've never experienced anything like it. We had like six weeks where we sat in a room and Andrew would bring in like 
famous interesting person after famous interesting person from John Safran through to PR experts to tell you about different aspects of the media. And when we finally ended that six weeks, he issued us a challenge, which is you have a slot after Spicks and Specs, when Spicks and Specs was doing a million, uh, you are in a high-profile spot. Wow. We're not going to tell you about ratings. You just need to tell me something I don't know. And it was wonderful and completely discombobulating because I don't know about you, but can you imagine operating without knowing what the bounds of success oh, are? forget it. Like, are you making journalism? Are you making comedy? Are you making – it was – I was – There's l- nothing more crippling than bring me something. Yeah, and I was lost. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I – the first season of that show – and I came out of the gates and I was like, I would deliver script after script for things that were sort of like funny, factual-based things. Mm. And I would just pitch and pitch and pitch and pitch and they would never make it onto the show. And by the end of the first season – and, and everybody felt the same way and there was always competition to be in that half-hour show. A little bit like you hear people talk about Saturday Night Live where you're pitching, you're pitching, pitching, but at least on Saturday Night Live you know what genre you're delivering yes. in. Yes. And I got to the end of the season and I I was broken and, yeah. I, and I would go, you know, I'd leave the house in the morning and I'd spend all day at this office and then it would come to Wednesday and I'd come home to my wife, no, my girlfriend at the time, and I would struggle to explain what I did because I would spend all my time in this job and nothing ended up on air. Mm. And it just, and it complete, and I couldn't explain. I couldn't explain all this work I was doing that just never ended up on air. And I completely cracked the shits towards the end of the season one. I just didn't understand. I was so frustrated. And I felt like I was one of those people that had been hired that had, had experience. And this is about my, my wrong expectations about the show. I felt like because I had had experience I would probably end up on air. Right. But what I didn't account for is that every one of those 19 people were really talented, mm. more talented than I was, mm. no question. And people that were hired for one job, it very became it became very clear that, that those people were capable of so much more. People that were hired as researchers ended up hosting the show. Editors ended up hosting the show because they were good. Yeah. And it was a brilliant experiment. And I, um, I by the end of the first season – it became clear that the show had three modes. It had meaty six, seven-minute factual story, short, sharp sketch comedy, and then there was this space where there were three four-minute packages that were based on something factual but could be done in a fun way. Lots of props, lots of gags, lots of stuff like that. And I, by the end of this first season, I was like, okay, I need... There was a question about whether or not I would come back. I don't think Andrew was totally convinced about me coming back. And we had a bit of an argument, to, I think, towards the end uh, about whether I really belonged on that show, whether my attitude was right as well. And it, it wasn't. Mm. It was born out of a genuine frustration, but my attitude was just, I was so demoralised. Were and, you arguing to stay or were you? I, he asked me whether I thought I'd learnt anything from the show. And I said I hadn't. And I think that was an affront to him. Mm. And I think he he felt like I should have learnt something. And I... I said, I haven't got anything on air. There's, I, I think in the whole first season I had like two things that went to air. So I had nothing. I, I think he was offended that I hadn't learnt anything, but I hadn't because I hadn't got anything on air. Mm. You can't learn anything without a payoff. You can't say that you've been on a journey without an ending, right? Mm. So that was how I thought of it. But we end, we sort of resigned that I would come back in season two. In fact, yeah, we, I, we resigned that I'd, be, I'd come back to season two. But when it came back to season two... I attacked it like with a military precision. I knew what the show needed then. It needed feature pieces. I couldn't do that. It needed comedy pieces. I couldn't do that. But funny, factual things, I could deliver that. And I walked into season two 
with no joke, 15 script ideas ready to go. Mm. And I just attacked that shit so yeah. hard and I teamed with people. That was the other thing. So uh, Nick Hayden, who was an editor on the show, and Nick McDougall, who was an editor on the show, I just sat them down and uh, went, this is what I'm going to do and I think I have a better chance. And the show played favourites as well. It was pretty clear at the end of season one that Andrew had people that he liked and Andrew had people that he wasn't too sure about. Were there people that just consistently every single episode got stuff on? Uh, no, not that bad. No, but, right. but, but there was. it was pretty clear that Andrew had discovered some new shiny people and he was like, I'm going to... And this is not like... this. It wasn't like... Uh, um, it was all, you know... He'd found new people that had mm. never been heard of on TV before, and he's like, "Great, let's invest in them." Absolutely, the best possible intentions mm. for for investing in people. But I wasn't a new shiny thing, mm. and I knew I wasn't a new shiny thing. So I then needed to just work my ass off and approach it with a sort of like almost rage filled intensity. Yeah. Like yeah. I will push this script up a hill. And the thing you also have to understand about the ABC at this point in time was it was immediately after the Chasers Make a Wish scandal. So the ABC became very bureaucracy heavy. Mm. So you couldn't, they were so terrified about something like that happening again. If you wrote a script, it did end up going through like 12 people before it made it on air. And that was also a thing where you just had to be a little bit pushy uh, and a little bit political and a little bit diplomatic to get things through, and I just attacked it, and I and I attacked it with a group of people, and um, and then by season two, I had something in the show every single week, and I knew what I was delivering, and I just, and I I think people, I don't think I was terribly pleasant to myself or to be around, but I became very hardcore about delivering for that show because it was an incredible opportunity, uh, even though like. Now, thinking back on it, like the minute by minutes after, after Spix and Specs ended were like just cavernous and it fell apart. <laughs> the other thing that we discovered in season two was YouTube. So we had a oh, running right. joke that we made an okay TV. We made a confusing TV show, but an excellent YouTube channel. And because it was so discombobulated, there was no consistency across the show. What we l- discovered is that YouTube was really our audience and individual packages on YouTube started to do incredibly well and that was where the show started taking off which has actually informed how we approach the feed because mm-hmm. it's not youtube anymore it's facebook but we'll, i'm sure we'll get to yeah, that yep. <laughs> but, yeah and it was just by the end of it it was funny like i think at the end of season two or season three andrew picked hosts for the show and i think in the back of my head i really i just assumed that i would be in his list of people because i could present tv mm-hmm. and he didn't pick me and i i oh, <laughs> it, it, it really shat me to tears and he knows it shat me to tears. And at the end of the – we only ever did three seasons um, and in, in between season two and three I'd gotten a gig on Channel 10 doing morning shows and stuff mm-hmm. like that and my my sense of self-worth was no longer caught up as much with this TV show. And by the end of it, this rap party, Andrew said to me, yeah, I didn't make you one of the hosts because I think you, you wanted it too badly. <laughs> so, oh wow! I don't. I don't know how that stacks up as a as a reason to do something or not to do something. But it it did make me work hard because I suspect if he had not to give him too much clairvoyant credit, but if I had been made the host, I probably wouldn't made one of the hosts. I probably wouldn't have worked my ass off mm. as much to get content up. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that genre that we sort of pioneered in that show is the checkout now, basically. Mm-hmm. So. When the show ended, a bunch of the Chaser guys spoke to us and went, "Can you?" We we were called like Team WTF, which is a name, but that's what we were called. <laughs> and he, they asked us for our for our favourite Team WTF bits that were like very factual, very fast, very um, you know tongue in cheek, lots of sketches in the mix, and that that model has been completely 
refined and taken to a high art by the team on the checkout now. But that's sort of that's one of its key origins. Do you, you said about Andrew thinking that you didn't want it? I mean, you wanted it too much. But I don't know what you think about this now at this stage in your career. Don't you find though that one of the better uh, sort of weapons in your back pocket now is not needing something. Oh, for sure. Like yeah. I, I think I actually think there is a good point to that. I think if I was running a show, I would be wary of the person yeah. who was super desperate for it. Yeah. Um, be- so true. Because it's often the person that's comfortable in their, you know, in their own ability. Like that, that sort yeah. of indicates a greenness that I think you can kind of go, you need a bit more time. It remained like a bit of a Ahab and his whale for me, like mm-hmm. being asked to host something because I had been a professional guest since I was a teenager. Yeah. And and then to be given Were you sh- over it? Like, Yeah, mm. I was. And I'd done a bunch of like pilots for shows on Tan and, and Foxtel and things like that and and uh, and all of it, like it was always like as a, as a side guest. And, and in retrospect... I was 24, like, oh, no, older, like 26. Like, no one gives a 26-year-old a show to host. Mm. It was stupid. I don't know Mm. why I assumed that I would even think that way about it. But um, because I had been in TV for so long, it remained like this thing. Like, why doesn't anyone think I can anchor a show? Am I unlikable? Like, Mm -hmm. what? what, do I not have the right skill set? And it really bothered me. It really, really, really bothered me. And um, I think that was why... When other opportunities came up in like in radio uh, here at the ABC and um, and when SBS came calling, I was so like, I need to get this off my back. I just need to front something. And it doesn't matter how small the audience is. I just need to know that I can do it, that I can go from funny to sad. I can take an audience from one thing to another thing. It was like a really weird thing that just hung around my neck and, mm. and really until the feed and download came along. But, of course, I was 27 when the feed started and I was 26 when download started these are still very young years yes but for me because I've been doing it I've been around cameras and microphones since I was really young it really became like unhealthily like a really unhealthy obsession um and, and like again we were so deeply within the realm of first world problems here but for me yeah. it was a thing but what now that you've been doing it for a long time and once you s- scratch that itch how did that feel for you was it a was it deflating in a way yeah was it- uh, well I put actually in the early days of the I'm so grateful that SBS2 had such small viewers at the time because yeah. um the early days so the way the feed happened is 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 a, is a perfect microcosm of how TV works right so mm. SBS was launching this new channel SBS2 at the time and they needed original content on it and uh they ended up hiring Nick Hayden who was the editor that I'd worked with on Hungry Beast. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'd done a bunch of advertising stuff and we'd done some stuff at Foxtel together and uh, they'd hired him and they said, you've got to turn around this nightly show with six weeks from concept to delivery. And we were out having a drink and he's like, yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to make it like this nightly mix of news and popular culture and technology. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a really fun show to present. And he's like, do you want to? Oh, <laughs> wow, like, really? It's like I hadn't considered, I didn't know, I didn't, have drinks with Nick on the assumption that he would offer me a job because his last job was 10 breakfast and that worked out ace. Um, (laughs) And I went in and my wife had real like concerns about it because it's like it's giving up your night. Mm. It was, you know, you you lose all of your nights when you're hosting a nightly TV show. Mm. That's that's just what happens. And she, you know, it, it is a huge life change. And But at the end of the day, SBS made such a good 
offering out of it because it was something that I had had like a deep desire to do and in a really off-Broadway place to do it. And but, that, but the thing you were saying earlier is that once I got on air, doing nightly live TV was a f- real crash course because even though no one's watching, every stumble I made with a word felt like the world was tumbling down. <laughs> people would tweet. I imagine that people watching that at home going, oh, well, I mean, this is why <laughs> no yeah, one's letting him host right. a joke because yeah. he can't pronounce Amandinejad's <laughs> name. <laughs> like, and it really, I would, I would beat myself up about every little misspeak. And, of course, the key to doing it right is just, to is to be comfortable on yep. camera. The less pressure there's on it, the easier it becomes. And now it's like the easiest part of my day. I'd get up in front of the camera and, and it helped significantly when they gave me a co-host too because we could start to bounce off each other. Initially for the first two years I did the show by myself. Yeah. It's like it's all on you. you it's don't. tough. Yeah. yeah. And so once they gave me a co-host, um, Jan Fran, who's just like a joy mm. to work with, I'm so grateful every day I get to do the show with her. It's just like it's changed completely and it's like – it's no longer a thing. I've, I've come through the other side of That's, that particularly yeah. weird tunnel. <laughs> I think a lot of people sometimes assume that in media the best thing would be those top-of-the-tree gigs, you know, your breakfast radios, your, your master chef, your whatever mm. it is. I think there is something huge to be said about doing stuff off-Broadway. Totally. Because there is a an ability to trial and error yeah. there is a relax you know you're not you're not have under such scrutiny that can happen on the top jobs that can take every ounce of your creativity away from you mm. until you are just the robot that's doing what you're supposed to do to not offend anybody to keep things on track yeah. um and uh, you know obviously i, I don't know I, I don't see the feed though as that off broadway it, it has in I large, think it's become something yeah, in, pretty big In large now. part because of Facebook. It has, yes, exactly, yeah. And socially. Think, yeah, and look, no one's suggesting that SBS is this massive high-rating thing, but it. I was talking to um, my AP the other day because Nick's Nick moved on to join the ABC, hilariously enough, and the, the um, Lanny, who runs the show now, we were talking about the fact that like it's the best job in TV. I mm. get to... I get to host a show with one of the f- most fun people I know. We have completely divergent things about what we want out of the show. She wants to do comedy bits. And what I've learned that I love doing most is I interview people and yeah. my job is to travel. And it's the best job because I can travel anywhere in the country and I can interview anybody that I can convince to sit in front of a camera. And um, that means incredibly um, not famous people. Like I spoke to a, a girl that's an astronomer who just has a great life story through to, you know, Tom Cruise who I spent half an hour with the other day. <laughs> and I love that. I, that is the thing that I love doing. And Facebook has completely changed the way we make that show now because way more people watch the feed on Facebook than ever watch it on TV. Mm. Like I know I, we can get 400,000 views for something on Facebook that that you can't ask for that even on SBS1, let alone SBS Viceland. So it's, it's you know, it, that Facebook has, it's funny, n- no one liked the name The Feed because we would oh, sort really? of handle it. We, we were handed it, somebody else came up with it, we didn't come up with it, but hilariously it has become the number one way on a Facebook feed that people watch the show. It's almost like the show has grown into the name. It's really yeah, weird. Right. But, yeah, it's Facebook has meant that the show has ceased to be this this weird side thing on, on, on multi-channel. It's become something that gets consumed really widely and, you know, millions and millions of views a week. It's insane. And, and just by persevering and trying things and seeing what works, and it, it took us a while, but I'm really glad that it's it's grown the way that it has. And the people, like... There are no assholes on the show, mm. and that, that has also taken a while. 
the if you're doing if they're so successful on Facebook, are you are they going onto Facebook as they appeared on the feed exactly? And are you more sort of planning the segments for Facebook than you are for TV? All of those things are true. So yeah. we we make three kinds of content on the feed. So there's um, Oh, excluding the, the TV show, which has headlines and stuff like that, which are really just there for the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we make six, seven-minute sort of feature stories on interesting slices of Australian life. Um, then there's interviews that I do that are about the same length. Then there are daily comedy pieces that are made by either Jan Fran, comedian Michael King, or Mark Humphreys and Evan Williams, mm-hmm. um, or the Golden Boys, as I like to call them. I used to work <laughs> with them on the road. Oh, of course, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. And I see, yeah, Mark's always posting. They, they, yeah. they do a great job, a yeah. great job. So, um, so there's... There's that stuff, uh, and those are the different kinds of content. And the beha- and then what we've introduced in the last six months is because the six seven minute feature pieces weren't really performing. Uh, what we started to do is we got a new producer in who would take those pieces and produce one or two short one to two minute square videos um, that go out at four thirty in the afternoon based on those those seven minute features. And then the seven minute features go out on Facebook on the weekend where they perform better. Mm-hmm. Um, everything's subtitled. Everything goes out as soon as it's ready on the show. We know when our peak audiences are for, for Facebook. Um, the interviews perform generally really well. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'm super encouraged by is the fact that people will stay and watch a six-minute thing on Facebook. And the traditional logic has been that people only watch short things on Facebook. But if you hook people correctly, yeah. um, you can get them to stick around. And Facebook are also pushing up in their algorithm six, seven-minute things more than um, live video, which I think they're slowly working out isn't quite doing what they expect it to do. Yeah. So we're, you know, we've, we pay a lot of attention to, to Facebook and, and how we reach people in different ways. And Every week there's something that does above, you know, 100, 200,000 and, and it's always different every week what does that thing and then it grows from there. So it's really become, you know, even though we have a TV show and I love doing a live TV show, it's really become a digital operation and in, will increase that way I think as, as we move forward, which is what SBS want it to be. I mean, mm. that's I mean that's how broadcasters are going, right? Yeah, I mean, and the other acknowledgement here is that at 7.30, we have just unbelievable competition yeah. from MasterChef and, um, and 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 Lee Sales as well, for what mm. it's worth. And it's really important for me that what we do, and nothing but love and respect for Lee, um, but it's really important that what we do feels like it couldn't happen on any other show. Oh, yeah. And for me, the challenge, particularly with famous people interviews, is because you see when a famous person is in town, they do a certain, you know, collection of shows. They do the project today, sunrise, seven mm-hmm. thirty, the feed. That's mm. basically what they do. And so, and I know those people, and I've worked on some of those projects, and I love those shows. But it's really important for me that we do something that feels very different. Um, so that's the other challenge that I think we're starting to generate, or I think we have generated in last year, a real sense that the feed do things a little bit differently when they get that kind of talent. I think that's important. How do you find, um, I'm not sure that I can, I mean, I only worked out that I love James Blunt after watching your interview with <laughs> so him. So did I. <laughs> I had never really, you know, he's one of those people that's obviously somewhere in my purview, but I hadn't really paid a great deal of attention. But that chat with him, I just thought, wow. Yeah. You're a really interesting, crazy guy, you know. Um, but in terms of trying to do something, 
something different with guests because I think the reason, I mean, there's a million reasons why in commercial radio and television the interviews end up sounding same, same, and that's mostly because sitting down with these people, it's the conveyor belt of interviews. Yeah. It's very tough. You know, you'll get those shows that, that push it and are like, hey, Tom Cruise, here's a script. Mm. Let's, like, sit down and, you know, and you just think you can see the, the star on the other side, like, glazing over and just going, get me out of here immediately. How different can you get? It's a really interesting question. So I guess because I had a long time doing junkets, I did junkets for the movie show, I did junkets for the circle on Channel 10. And I've done the thing where, I mean, if you're listening to this, you may not know, but if a famous person comes to town, they sit in a hotel room, usually the Park Hyatt, they've got a poster over their shoulder, you walk in, you've got five minutes, you chat, you leave. Everything about, I understand why they do it. But everything about that environment is designed to make you have the world's most boring conversation. And I think increasingly uh, the film companies recognise that. So, you know, that's why the project pushed to have people on the desk because Mm. you get something better out of them. And I think the project do an incredible job with that. I'm nothing but respect for that show. But for me, a successful interview is where there's at least three moments where you feel like you had a truly authentic moment with a famous person, mm. for, where you you felt like you understood them as a human being. They don't necessarily have to reveal something new, but it has to be a moment that feels undeniably human and you forget the starness. So we did a couple of things. Um, we refuse to do junkets anymore. We don't do the walk into the room and, and sit down with the poster thing. We will pay for a room. Uh, that they will, that the star has to get up and walk into another room and sit down. And I think there's a there's a mental process that they go through where they go, they have to walk into another room, which means, oh, this show must be special. I think it has a huge impact. It's a mm. small thing, but it's a huge impact. And person before product, it's really simple. I'm happy to talk about the film that they've got out uh, and I'm happy to put a, a big logo for the film they've got out in the graphic intro and to back announce it. But when you're talking to a person, you're there to talk about a person. And sometimes film companies get it and they recognise that the half a million views it gets on Facebook is worth that. Mm. Um, And sometimes they're a bit tetchy about it. And that's just something that we need to negotiate on a case-by-case basis. So, um, you know, we had Zac Efron on the show the other day and I've interviewed Zac a few times over the years and um, Baywatch is not good. Like it's yeah. a garbage film. Yeah. Like, and I and I, they asked me what I thought of the film. I said I think it's garbage. And they're like, is this going to be okay? I was like, well, yeah, it's fine because he's an interesting guy. This is a guy that's been famous since he was a kid. That has an interesting impact. Mm. And we talked about that. Name check the movie at the top and the bottom because that's the the deal that you do. But for me, what matters is that you get something out of that person that is unique. And and I really love watching what everyone else does. Like I love watching that the footy show with giving um, one of the dudes a, a, a back sack and crack wax. And I love watching that because I think it's really interesting to see how different shows tackle yeah. that stuff. And, and I'm part of an ecosystem of the media in this country and – but what matters to me is that the audience feel like they saw something they couldn't find elsewhere, and I don't mind paying a little bit of money to get in, to get a room to do that. And, and luckily, the show recognises that we get pretty good uh, hits from that. And it's also not the only thing we do; is the other thing. Like I don't like we do a lot of original journalism and and it's authentic human Australian stories. But I just think if you are going to do a Hollywood star or a musician, you have to find something that makes it stand out and, and also make it look beautiful. Particularly yeah. that's become another thing with, with musicians. Like we will only interview them, generally speaking, if we can film them perform and, and, and meld that together. Blunt was a different issue because I hate his music, but um, <laughs> like, I don't know what to say. Like, I was, yeah. you know, that interview came about in a very roundabout way. I was filming on top of a mountain in Canberra. I got a call from the record label going, we've got half an hour with James Blunt tomorrow. Do you want to do it? I'm like, 
Yes. Yeah. Yes, I will do that. Yeah. So that sometimes I chase really hard and sometimes sometimes they just sort of come to you. But one thing I can always guarantee is if, if we're going to do an interview, I'm not going to put something to wear that I don't think is interesting. And sometimes it means you run, you know, five minutes instead of seven minutes and sometimes you run 12 minutes. Do you ever run nothing? Have you ever there been Yeah, I've dumped any? a few. Yeah. I've dumped a few. No one terribly famous though. Mm. And, and by the way, fame is not my only litmus test for interest, but it, it has an impact. Like I yeah. think people will withstand something slightly less interesting from a very famous face for a period of time. Mm. I don't think you can push it too far though. Like there have been some interviews where I just thought that was just unusably boring. Yeah. And, and, and luckily I've gotten more picky with who we do. So those are those unerably boring interviews are all old junket things that, you know, cost you nothing to go sit in the room for five minutes. But I it, doing the years at Channel 10 was really helpful for that because mm. um, all the movie stars would come to Sydney. They wouldn't go to Melbourne. The circle came out of Melbourne. I was in Sydney. And they would just send me along, go interview Rihanna, see what happens. And because it was all junket, they didn't, there was no harm, no foul. And yeah. and if they just wanted to run it as a clip in the middle of my weekly segment, that was also fine. Mm-hmm. So it was a good way of lifting the pressure off because what's scary about those interviews is like you've got 10 minutes with uh, Will Smith. Actually, this is, the, this is the one that terrified me the most of all of them. Uh, they flew me to Taiwan to spend five minutes with Will Smith, right? And... He was my first ever interview in my life when I was oh, 20. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, I want to know about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the thing that was terrifying was like, I've gone all this way. I have five minutes and I'm not scared about meeting the famous person. I'm scared about coming back with a full five minutes of usable, engaging material. Well, the thing about that, right, is it takes at least 15 minutes to build rapport. Usually, yeah. Yeah, right? you know, you've got to sit down, have a bit of chat with somebody, work out do I like you, do I not, to sit down. I had We had two and a half minutes with Russell Brand once and I was like, <laughs> what? He, on the phone. He's never answered a question in no, less than exactly. like ten. on the phone. Oh, so you man. can't even get a hello, how are you out in that time. So five minutes to sit down and to get – and you can't even – you want to probably run that whole five minutes. So that yeah. doesn't even give you any space for edit. No, and that was like – and it's funny, I'd, I'd, ha- I'd really like to do Will Smith again because it was on balance. I think that final piece with clips in it ended up running 420, which actually is pretty good given the circumstances. Mm. But I just remember thinking it was him and Jaden together, which is all, also another thing because really you want to talk to Will. And, yeah, that kind of pressure I, I removed from myself by, um, by, the, by owning the room, basically. By, if you own the room, yes. you, you have it's on you. And even though, you know, no one's going to kick you out of a junket room, it's never happened that I'm mm. aware of, but by owning the room, you have a little bit of that freedom to find that moment with them. Um, and we, the, look, the, They're the, also on your turf. A like, little bit, yeah. yeah. And I think, I, honestly, if you ask creative people about where their creativity comes from, which is really all it boils down to, Usually they're they're pretty good. I've I've had some dud junkets over the years. Um, Brendan Fraser is the one that stands out. Oh really? Threw a newspaper at me. Why? Ah, uh, it was I f-ed up. <laughs> okay. Why? What did you do? So before Hungry Beast, Triple J had a TV show called JTV, mm-hmm. which ran at Rando Times on ABC Two, and uh, they sent me to go do a couple of junkets. Um, and they booked Brendan Fraser for The Mummy 3. And I was like, why are we doing this? Why? And, and that's always a bad sign, right? Yeah. So I got in there. I found I did a bunch of research and I found out that they had taken out kidnapping insurance on him in The first Mummy and I thought it might be fun 
to do like, do you know how much you're worth as a kidnap victim? And he'd be like, oh, no, I have no idea. And I'm like, well, here's a copy of today's newspaper. Can you hold it up underneath your chin as they do in hostage videos? Mm -hmm. Look down the barrel of the camera and say, hi, my name's Brendan Fraser and I've been kidnapped by JTV. As like, I thought it'd be like a fun prop gag. I thought in my head I could see the promo. I could kind of imagine what it would look like. And this is why I never do gags because (laughs) he was uh, very jet lagged and I didn't, he didn't seem like he was totally with it. Sobriety. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, And uh, he just looked at me. He looked around the room. He realized he didn't know anybody in the room. And he just freaked out because. I, I don't know if he thought he was actually being kidnapped. kidnapped. Or, <laughs> I don't know. Well, that was how he responded. Like, no, dude, I'm not going to do that. And he yeah. threw the newspaper at me and I'm like, okay. And now, and I just moved on to like something else. And firstly, I, I fumbled the gag. So mm. I fumbled the gag to begin with, which is never good because mm-hmm. I don't feel like they're in safe hands yes. with the gag. Yeah. I also learned like this really basic thing, which is that people don't want to be used like a puppet. Yeah. And and John Casimir, he was a producer on Enough Rope and I worked with at uh, Hungry Beast he once said one of the things that people don't think enough about in interviews is what does the interviewee want to get out of it? Yeah. Do they want to seem like they're smart? Do they want to feel like they're respected? And that was a critical moment where I realised that just because they're famous doesn't mean they're a performing monkey. Yeah. And some of them are happy to perform if they feel like they are part of the gag, if they feel like they can get something out of it, if if they're warned. Um, and I, all those things I just didn't do in that moment. And I was young and stupid and I just, I felt like garbage. I mm. felt like I, I had a really bad encounter with somebody I didn't terribly respect in the first place, to be fair. Um, <laughs> and so for me, the really important thing about any kind of profile interview is, is make sure that you do just respect the other person. It doesn't matter if they're famous or not. Just like respect, if they feel like they're respected, they will give you better material. Absolutely. It and seems really obvious when I say it out loud, but it was a thing I had to learn. But I think it, the interesting thing is, you know, they get so much, half of the reason why when you walk into a junket, they already have contempt for you before you sit yeah, down so is because their level of expectation is so through the floor low because you can bet your bottom dollar that, for example... What attracted you to the role? That's it. Or the classic one which used to drive me nuts is I used to feel like smacking around the head anybody who asks a question that relates directly to the movie title. For example, Mm. horrible bosses. Have you guys had any horrible bosses? Like this is the garbage that comes through on the conveyor belt one after the next after the next. So if you honestly just sit down and go, my MO in this interview is to see you as a human being and for us to sit down and have a killer chat where you don't feel victimised or like I'm going to look for the two-second grab that I can put on social and make you look like a dickhead. Like I see you, you see me, let's sit down and have a chat. You already have set yourself apart, so they're already going to give you more than they would give somebody else because the number of times they're sitting across from a 19-year-old who's never seen a thing that they've done. who works for some entertainment website that does rip and reads. Yeah, yeah. who doesn't care, you know. Yeah, and I... I I also feel sorry for that nineteen year old because I've been that nineteen year old. Yeah, you've been that nineteen year old. Yeah, I've been that. Yeah. So I, what I do now before I conduct an interview is I get quite obsessive where I watch anything they've done and everything they've done. And increasingly, what I found is like you watch two or three junkets and like okay, that's going to cause me physical pain if I watch another one. What I honestly (laughs) what what I go to now is I think 
uh, written articles are unreliable because they can be taken out of context. And if you're trying to quote somebody, like I, I read that you said this in 2006, like, well, no, I didn't say that. I, I meant this. That blows up in your face more often. What I look for now is radio interviews mm-hmm. because no one's looking for them. They're not transcribed. They often are in a radio studio like this for longer than they are in a junket. Yeah. Before they're famous, usually too famous to do radio, um, and they give more, and you find little snippets that you can build upon in your interview, and it's not like the thing that, you know, the, the factoid that's in the second paragraph of the Wikipedia that everyone talks about, right? Yeah. So that's where I find the weird, quirky things that I think um, that you can build upon, that they that you surprise them. And it... Yeah, I think that's where I go for research now. And, and any old podcast they've ever done, any old radio interview they've ever done, that's where I think the gold usually lives. Mm. And because it's not transcribed, no one's looking for it. No one yeah. finds it. You've just got to take the time to, to find those bits. What you're doing now and where you're sitting now, pre-AFI, award from AFI, <laughs> sorry, get it, get the get the language right. Uh, <laughs> they don't exist anymore. I don't really care. <laughs> but when you were a kid, mm. Is, is this where you wanted to be? No. Um, it is better. Like I think um, – Where did you want to be when you were little? What was the dream? I think I definitely wanted – I think when I was a kid, I definitely wanted to make movies. Um, so but, movies, the thing, that's been in yeah, you forever. It, You've it, always been a fan. I've always loved film. I was raised on Star Trek and I think Star Trek was like a weird thing where – there's a lot of it and a lot of it's shit. Mm. And, some, and when it's good, it's really good. And so I generated like really firm opinions about what I thought was good filmmaking, what I thought was bad filmmaking, yeah. and it all goes back to Star Trek <laughs> because so much of it was shit. Yeah. Um, I definitely wanted to make things, make films, but I'm I'm not a frustrated filmmaker. I don't harbour any desire to make feature films. What I, what I love is um, – I love talking to people, I love meeting people, but I also love crafting those things. Mm. You know, when I – I think the thing I was saying before, like I love m- taking um, – going out in the field with cameras and drones and osmos and, and making something that looks beautiful. And and I, I, I love crafting that and I love crafting it knowing how the audience will encounter it, usually on Facebook in this instance. Or And, and, and I love the creating moments in, in, in media. I think that's that's what I love doing. Um, so, you know, it's, it's so far removed from, you know, Facebook didn't exist when I was a kid and TV of this kind of nature also was sort of not, you know, you don't have exposure to the kind of TV that we make now. That's mm. like a terribly formed sentence. I don't know really how embarrassing. <laughs> It'll do. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, it's so different to what I expected, but it's much, much better. But I was, re- you know, I was really lucky that I was emerging in school at the same time when like cheap digital cameras and mm. iMovie and those sorts of things emerge that you, you you suddenly see the possibilities of what yeah. you could make. And this is, you know, a, a pirated version of Final Cut Pro 7. This is what I can thank a lot of my career to. Like, mm-hmm. These these things that were there that you, you understood the the building blocks of, of media and they were there for you to play with. And I think at some point in the future somebody will learn to write, somebody will write the piece about how, iMovie was like a gateway drug for a generation of media makers and I think and garage band as well for that yeah. matter so I think having that at that right time like you know 2000 2001 2002 was just like incredible in terms of like giving you a sense of what you could make and 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 giving you a sense of ownership over the material like like if you know what it is you're making and you know how to piece it together and you can reverse everything in back from that. And that was really, that has been life-changing. 
Pete Hellier said he is sure that the reason he has lasted so long in media is because he's always been able to be the person in the room that has ideas. Do you feel your ability to make things has been what's kept you here the whole time? Yeah, I mean, I I had my first TV show acts before I turned 21. (laughs) And so I knew at that moment that I would always have to have at least two jobs mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. I would always need to have multiple things on the boil. What was the show that got that was, a, that was the movie show. That was started, oh, the uh, yeah, movie show. Yeah, I started when right, I was 19, 19 yeah. and Axe by the time I was, tw- by before I turned 21, just yeah. before I turned 21. I didn't even have enough time to generate a coke habit. I mean, yeah. God, what kind of failed child star <laughs> am I? And I, yeah, and I just knew that I needed to do multiple things at, and that has been the way I've proceeded through life, always coming up with ideas and, and making things and reacting to things as well as because a lot of what I do is it's reacting to an interviewee or reacting to a movie and a review. So that's actually the way most of my stuff has worked. But always having multiple things on the go and and never saying no, really, like mm. just like really um, agreeing to things. And only now, really, the first major choice I've made to leave a job happened about three weeks ago yeah, when right. I said I was going to leave Triple J. Everything else, shows come to an end, you know, the circle was axed, mm-hmm. you know, these things just happened and you just, you got used to a natural attrition rate where shows would just come to an end and you'd find a new thing and you wouldn't stress too much because you had a few other things. But I realised at the end of 2016 that, oh, this is the first time I get to make a choice. I get to make a choice about what comes to an end. And That's nice. Yeah, and it's weird that it took me to 32 before I got that opportunity, I guess. Yeah. Um, I hadn't quit a job until then, uh, realistically. So, but, but everything in this business takes time. It does, doesn't you know? it? It's that classic overnight success, like everybody's been shrieking away at it for 20-odd yeah. years or whatever waiting for the... I mean, that's the premise of this show, right? Yeah, like, totally. I mean, that, that's, that's why I love this show because it's you all these people who, you know, you feel like they become famous when a couple of op-ed, a couple of pieces get written about them and they get it on a you know a nice profile on a magazine and suddenly like oh yeah that person's finally bad but that there's like it's like an iceberg careers are like an iceberg you know there's that bit popping out the top where you see them in a promo or a billboard yeah. or on the side of a bus but then underneath that there is a lifetime of experiences and and accidents and cups and more <laughs> that led to that moment <laughs> and that uh, and the thing i love about this show is that that you can suddenly explore that and you realise that actually a lot of people that have been successful in whatever way, shape or form, um, there's this hidden stuff that just doesn't get really talked about until you reach a certain point. I think it's always very relieving to recognise that these accidents filled the lives of Pete Hellier and Lee Sales and all these people. Yeah. I find it very comforting. If I'd known that yeah. when I was a 24-year-old, yeah. I would have felt a lot better about my life. I think not just for people who aren't in media but for also people in media. I think sometimes there's, there is a tendency, I, I hear some people talking about the opportunities that come other people's way mm. Like they're the lucky ones or, oh, they always get everything. And, you know, even for people in media, I think it's important to realise that the people that have risen to the top, like a lot, okay, there might be a few ones in there that, yes, you just like, you do not deserve it. And we all know we've met a few of them. But for the most part, you get this sense of a work ethic that has been behind the scenes for years that means that they are truly deserving of where they've gotten to. And yes, once you start to be the type of person that people aren't, they know your name at the dinner table, then all of a sudden it looks like luck is coming your way all the time because you seem to be everywhere and you get all of the opportunities. But you've still been pushing shit uphill for fifteen years yeah. before that, or whatever it is, you know. It's been really funny the last couple of weeks since I did announce I'm leaving Triple J that 
Like <laughs> all these like offers have come out of the oh, woodworks. Yeah. And, and and in ways that I didn't really expect or anticipate that I I was like honestly, I was like, if I'd known that this many people was were that interested, I would have, have left ages, ages ago. ago. <laughs> but if if I didn't, it's almost like by the act of leaving of your own choice and with such a clear kind of desire to be replaced by somebody young and more interesting than me, um, that has somehow put me on a radar that I didn't expect at, at all. And suddenly I was like getting all these emails going, "Would you come test for this? And would you come do this?" And it's, it's all very, um, it's lovely. It's it's really lovely, but completely unexpected because for me it was just a thing that I did at one o'clock in the morning in a tiny nineteen seventies esque room of the ABC. Yeah. So it's very, um, it's lovely, and and I'm really proud of the the time that I spent at Triple J. But I'm more proud of the fact that I'm replaced by somebody who's 22 and, and going to be better than me and be a whole generation of kids that don't think I ever existed. But, you know, it almost goes back to that that Andrew Denton too green thing. Mm. When you don't need it, yeah. that's when you look appealing. It's, yeah. You know, and, and that, totally that can be a, that can be a number of different things. It can be quitting something, saying no to something. It can also be making something of your very own that isn't dependent on a media organisation that makes somebody at a media organisation all right. of a sudden go, Oh, you don't need us. You can do this. But okay, right, we see you now. Yeah, it makes negotiating a lot easier. <laughs> it sure does. I mean, it's funny. A- Andrew Andrew was always very good at like one-line proverbs that would get you through life. It's just <laughs> spectacular. We, like we, we I was talking to him the other day and one of the my favourite Andrewisms was um, – the best opportunity is the one that's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. So you're not doing everything you want to be doing in life. But right now you have this job right in front of you and you have this job right in front of you. Do the absolute best job you can at that and someone will take notice. Yes. Um, and that, that for, for all of the, compli- the complexities of my relationship with Andrew, we're fine now, by the way, <laughs> uh, for all of the complexities of that, I mean, that really has been the one way I, I've pushed through most things. I, I have two minutes 30 of radio to play with here. I have five minutes with Will Smith here. What do I do to make this the best version of that it can be? You know, yes, I can't afford a team of researchers and a jib and a gimbal to make this look mm. like uh, the Gats- Great Gatsby, but I can make this the best possible few minutes I can. And and from that you can build and people will take notice. I think that is actually proven. I, that has actually been proven out over the years. Definitely. It also, because there can be a tendency in this business to look elsewhere. Yeah. Where am I going? When will this? Because you do feel like everything has a, has a use-by date and yeah. eventually something will end. But the other thing that that does, uh, you know, being present and working, on things individually is when those individual things, whatever that show is or whatever ends, you don't feel like you didn't give it enough of a shot and then you're not shooting it, like you're not, you know, punching yourself in the face for going, oh, my God, I regret that I didn't make the most of that. You'll then leave every job feeling like, okay. I milked that. I milked it. (laughs) I milked it. There's nothing I can do. I can walk on head held high and not feel like I gave up my one great opportunity, you know, and I think that's important for your own mental well-being in this business because shows and stuff finish all the time and you need to walk on to the next one feeling like, great, what an awesome little thing to tie a bow on. Where am I going to next? I'd rather have, I mean, it's hard because like I'd rather have tried something and it not be that great. Yeah. Then have not have tried anything Definitely. at all, um, and and you get better at it. Like I did two books, and the thing that writing two books taught me is that I'm 
a broadcaster mm-hmm. <laughs> is that my natural headspace is is talking to people yeah. and I will probably go and write another book at some point in my life but it'll be very different to the first two which are basically just like an entire book of like that movie guy reviews yep. and I was like okay I'm done with listicles like if I wanted to do that I'd have taken a job at BuzzFeed you know what I mean like yeah. I, and um and they would have done it better than I would have so I yeah I mean that there are examples where I've put things out in the world where it like great learning experience, but not my best work. Mm-hmm. And slowly, I think I've gotten better at just shaving away the thing. But I wouldn't have learned that if I hadn't done it, right? Exactly. So I'm so shaving away the things that don't work for me and, and focusing on the things that work for me, work for the the brands that I worked for, and, and stuff like that. Before we get to the final questions of the show, I need to ask you about Mark Fennell Outfits, the, ha- <laughs> <laughs> the hashtag. I finally worked out who it was. Oh, is it one person that started yeah. it? Yeah. So I – okay, so the backstory here is for like one – I think it was like 2015, mm. one random dude would Instagram uh, – <laughs> would Instagram a screenshot of the show with my outfits. <laughs> Yes. And my outfits are not that interesting. There's a lot of blue, a lot of flannel. Yeah, I've never n- seen you in anything that I would like label as outlandish. No, Lee Lynchin, I am not. But this guy <laughs> basically would Instagram it and it became a thing. I got to write up an MX. It yep. was weird. Um, and we had uh, people assumed that I had done it. I'm like, mate, I've got four jobs. I don't have the time to do that. <laughs> yeah. um, also, how do you think I'm screenshotting myself during the show? <laughs> no one knows. Uh, and... Some people thought it was like the social media team at, at SBS. I'm like, no, 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 they mm. don't have the time. But uh, what happened was, and he only did it for a year. He went from day to day over a 12-month period. But then about a week ago, I got a DM message from the Instagram account who DM'd me to mine said, hey, uh, I applied to take over from your job at Triple J. Here's my application. <laughs> oh, he's tried to get you to give him a good word because he started Mark Fennell Outfits. Yes. <laughs> Oh, come on now. And But the SoundCloud link he sent to me had a name. So I now know who this person actually is. Did you, like, do any Google yeah, sneaking I, about? I, I prob- I'm, in fairness to him, I'm probably not going to book this. No, it's, no. It's, it's an actual dude. It's a human being. And I was like, and this account had been dormant for, like, two years. So I finally found out who this person is. Wow. Because <laughs> so, it remained, a, like, a deep mystery, a to, mystery. to me. And the fact that he'd done from... An exact 12-month period every single day from day to day and he would write, like, bitchy comments when Jan was hosting the show without me. (laughs) Oh, really? Oh, that's hilarious. Mark has transformed into a woman for the day, (laughs) don't you prove. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that's so interesting that he has sent his application. This is the the modern world in which we live of, like, social media friendships, right? Right? It's like because you're mildly aware of the Instagram account that I created, we now have a connection that I can send you my – you can go in and pitch for me. Yeah, it's just it was so weird. And oh, bless his gotten socks. But it was funny in that in the lead up to replacing me with Amelia, like there's um there was I was inundated with people going, "Can you listen to my review?" Oh, and and, yeah, and honestly, like I would any other time in my life, I'd happily listen to them. But I was getting a hundred of them a day. Yeah, right. and I'm like, I I was involved in in picking Amelia, but at like I went from the top five, top ten to the top five, and and then we as and then myself and Triple J and a bunch of other people within the building picked the final one. Mm. 
But I wasn't listening to the full 13,000 applicants. Yes. And yeah. I'm like, I'm not going. There's a process here. I can't listen to everybody's application. Mm. Uh, and I just, I sort of tapped out at a certain point. It's like, I'm I'm really thrilled and stoked and honoured that you would But I've quit, guys. <laughs> yeah, but I've quit. This is because I had too much on. I'm not yeah. going to do it anymore. So it was just this, like, it was very. Can't blame a guy for trying. Can you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what do you? He think? wasn't bad though. For what he was really. Yeah, oh, okay. He so you, you listened to his. I listened review. to his. Oh, cool. <laughs> All right. Bad. Oh, that's good. Um, so, what do you think is the best and the worst thing about the industry? Uh, the best thing about the industry is um, people, and I know that's a really pat garbage answer. I love, I love going to work with people that you can make their work better and they can make you better and you can have a lot of fun doing it. So my be- my favourite times in TV and radio have been in a car to a location. Yeah, right. You know, driving to Canberra to shoot some stupid thing or driving to the Mornington Peninsula to shoot an interview with somebody. I love I love that that time, but I also love when when you see the work of somebody that you work with and it, you, you see it in the editing room or you look down the lens of a camera and you just realise that you are lucky to get to do what you do, but you're also lucky to get to be a part of somebody else's mm. like creative journey. To yeah. be a little bit wankery about it, mm. I love that. I love that there's a, there's a com- the community that forms in that. And I guess because I've worked in so many different p- places, from like daytime commercial TV to community to um, to to like more to journalism and news networks, um, it's lovely seeing the the different ways in which people can 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 create things um I'm, I'm particularly thrilled to work with great camera people um because w- one of the things we're very lucky with on the feed is just beautiful camera work and, mm. and really talented young talented camera people at the beginning of their careers just turning out stuff that looks like a million dollars you know it's a huge difference oh, on social too God, like that's the kind it? of thing that'll make somebody stop because they go oh this isn't like a two-bit piece of shit yeah. this is like even if i'm not interested in the content that looks really cool i'm just gonna play it and yeah. see what it is i'm really proud of the look of our show yeah. and it's a, the thing that i have the least amount of control over which is that just um the worst part of it is um <sighs> the worst part of it is um, how a career in the public, no matter whether you're very famous or middling famous, as I probably would posit myself as, it really does feed on whatever insecurities you have about yourself. Mm. I think a career in the public means that you start to look at yourself no matter what scale of notoriety you have, you do start to look at yourself through the prism of how would other people think about me? How would other people think about this thing I'm doing? Um, because you watch the media judgmentally. Like I, I, I watch it critically. I, I watch interviews and I watch people present. I'm like, oh, my God, that was so bad. And then I think somebody's thinking that about me. Yeah. And it rec- I remember when the movie show started, um, with SBS had a forum back in the days of having forums for shows. Mm. And the forum was the most vicious. It was pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter. It was just the most vicious thing in the world. Was like, I remember one person said on the SBS forums, who is that fuzzy-haired abbo talking about DVDs? Wow. I was like, wow. wow. And I'm not Indigenous yeah. as a starting point. Would, and fi- would be lovely if I was, but I'm not. Mm. And I... I just remember thinking, this is the SBS forums. Yeah. And then you extrapolate from that out to like what you see on Twitter and Facebook and it's just like that that 
ambient awareness that social media gives you of how the audience think about you can be really, really detrimental if you're already a person that's not totally um, self. If you're a person that already has a fair bit of um, self-esteem issues, as mm-hmm. you know, as a chubby Indian kid that I am, I had, mm. I still do. Um, that way of thinking about yourself, constantly informed by what the public think about yourself, can can be really unhealthy. Um, do you? Uh, so so when were you? Was social media and everything a big thing when you started? S- social media really started to kick into gear when I did Hungry Beast. So that's the birth yeah. of Twitter. Um, Facebook wasn't in a video space, so mm. we weren't really operating there. We had a fa- we still actually maintain a Facebook page for reasons I'm not totally clear on, but but YouTube comments and Twitter were really starting to become a thing around then, and Twitter was particularly. Um, particularly cruel to you oh to everybody right. on the show. I'm, yeah. I'm not i'm not unique in that yeah, regard okay. but twitter was it was really like now there's all this people are now starting to pay attention to like how you know bullying twitter can be i'm like yeah and mm. <laughs> it's been that way for a long time but in the early days like twitter was just vicious would you look at a lot of that oh would yeah because you, 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 mm. you want to you make a tv show you want to see that people are watching it and it was the easiest way to be, feel this tangible sense that people are watching your show and it was just um it was just brutal and um you know it was sexist to my female presenter friends it was racist to people like me mm-hmm. it was a whole bunch of things and 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 just petty and pedantic and um you know it was also really lacking in and in, in like what we now call snark which is like a sort of it, the snarkiness was just like bitter and acidic and what i learned is like i'd been on twitter for a while at that point i was like oh my god i'm part of the problem i'm mm-hmm. not part of the solution here so my approach to twitter's changed pretty drastically in the in the years since but i just that i've become quite new to it over the years um and now I'm just like the most blocking heavy person ever. It's like you say something I vaguely dislike, I'm blocking you. I don't give a shit. Yeah. I don't need this crap in my life. Yeah. But there is a feedback loop that f- social media gives you. And I'm, I'm venturing through this really inarticulately. So no, please, please feel stumble free to- on in. We can just go through this <laughs> at whatever pace you like. So there's. So, so, the internet has always been central to everything that I do because mm. I was always a professional guest where I didn't have like a home, right? I didn't have any, like a, a media home. There was no show that I could own, right? But the internet became that. The Facebook page, the Twitter feed became, the, my own website became this, that's the home where all of my different things get funneled through. And so the, the problem for me was that um, the internet has been an essential part of a feedback loop from which I get my sense of who I'm talking to, um, it's, it's where, uh, it's, it's where I feel like I, the conversation that I start finishes and that's, that's my home. That's why I live there. Right. But so you can't just extract yourself from it. You can't do a Len Dunham and just like walk away from it because that was where I lived. Mm. Um, and it just took a while to work out that, um, you had to curate the kind of community you wanted. So if I put out bitchy, snarky things, I could not be surprised or annoyed if that's what I got back. Yeah. If I put out um, um, mean and horrible things, as I as I had done, mm. not 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 sexist, racist sort of stuff, but just like just like snarky comments about TV, knowing that it would come back to you and uh, and and somebody was going to do that to you, and realizing that the person you're talking about on the other end is a human being. Yeah. And that is a feedback loop that 
has taken a while for me as a media maker to 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 learn. And it's funny. So Jan, my co-host, she's um, you know, she, she has a, a really great social media following. She's great on Twitter. She's so much better than the internet than I am. But she will get into arguments with people online, and I'm just like, why? Mm. I mean, she's like we've, we talk about a lot when there's like an ad ad package on or, or a long feature on that. It's just like why why is it worth engaging in that? Because nine times out of ten, it's it's just not. Yeah. But yeah, for me, I just think to round to give you a clean version of that, <laughs> it's like seeing yourself choosing to see yourself as the public see yourself something that's enabled by social media can be can bring out the worst. In, in your self-esteem issues that you may or may not already have. And most people that in, are in the media have some self-esteem issues oh, to yeah. begin with. Like I be- I used to have a running joke, like I became a TV presenter because I wasn't hugged enough. I need people <laughs> to love me, right? <laughs> um, and there, that is a joke, but there's an element of truth to it and I think there's an element of truth to it for most people in the media. Like great performers and, and great entertainers, and I'm not saying I'm either of those things, but they are often great because they have an intuitive sense of when they've got the room with them mm-hmm. and when they don't. And when they don't, they can tweak it. Um, and that that hyper-awareness of what people are feeling about you can be so unhelpful, can mm. be so, so unhelpful in, in, in the long run in those deep, dark, quiet moments. There's, it's an incredibly powerful tool when the camera's on, when the lights are on, but when they're off... It really, um, it really can do an enormous amount of d- dissatisfaction. And working, and it's not like a thing you can turn on and off. You've just got to work through it and and make it work for you, and and let go of the things that are unhelpful. And also just be grateful that there's no promo photos of you with really bad hair when you're 19 because <laughs> that shit has followed me around forever. My big afro that I had oh, when I was a teenager. Afro, yeah. Yeah. It's just like when I first got to SBS to do the feed, some of the staff found this giant oh. poster of me that was in like a car lot of me with this massive <laughs> Yeah, you really need to just for people to leave you be until you've gone through that awkward phase, you know, and then, okay, now start to yeah. take photos. Don't of pay me. attention to me until I turn 26. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. All right, the final five questions, your biggest regret. There was a show that I was supposed to be part of on Channel 10 that I thought I was going to work on right up until uh, two weeks before it was due to air and then I was dropped um, that um, I didn't know about and and then, then I was dropped and I had built up this job as this like, next big thing I was going to do. I was going to do a show on primetime commercial TV uh, and then with like – maybe it wasn't two weeks, maybe it was like three or four weeks. I just – I was dropped from it and I was – it was like three weeks before my 26th birthday and I was heartbroken mm. and um, – I guess that's not a regret so much as a thing that like, it wasn't a choice that I messed up, but part of me always wonders what my life would have been like if I had done that show. Um, but yeah, like that a, a regret. But you're lucky that it wasn't your choice. You know, if yeah, you had have so. said no to it and then you like, that's the worst. That's why I think we all say yes to everything because we're yeah. terrified of that one thing. We're like, Oh, I could have been, I could have done that or yeah. But if it's out of your hands, it, it was. Yeah. And I guess I'm stretching the definition of regret, but it's a, it's, it still remains one of the bigger what if moments. Mm. And it may not have amounted to anything like the show ran two, three seasons, I think. Mm. Um, and the segment that I was originally booked to do was a really bad idea. Right. Um, yeah. So the segment and, – and so the segment that I was booked to do 
um, would have been a really terrible thing that would have generated a lot of bad publicity and just been bad for the media and would have created all kinds of problems, I think, for me in the long run. This is seeming less like yeah, a actually, great, actually, more no, like yeah. a godsend. Yeah, actually, maybe you're right. And, 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 and yeah, and yeah. Actually, I think you got yeah. out of this. Do you know what? Not regret. That's. Have you got a question for best bullet dodged? Because yeah, that's what go. that is. That's the best bullet dodged. Um, yeah. Okay. So actual regrets. Uh, um. God. You don't I, have to have one. No, I, I'm sure I do. I regret agreeing to write a second book that was identical to the first book <laughs> because it's like. <laughs> I was literally, so the first book was that movie book, which was just like different movies to watch across the weekend. I had a lot of fun with it. And when I agreed to write a second book, I literally wrote that book again. <laughs> and I was like, and, I'm, and I got halfway through it and I was like, what the f*** am I doing? I just, I just I don't enjoy doing this. And I think you, and it was totally reflected in the sales, by the way. I was like, you could tell I wasn't thrilled about it. Yeah. Um, it's a bet. It is actually a better version of the first book, but it's still the same. And I I think I learned to not repeat yourself. Right. There okay. You know. That's a good lesson. There's a succinct lesson. <laughs> like I was like, I've done it. It's done. Move let's, on. Let's not moan about it. It's done. Move on. Yeah. Uh, your dream gig. Uh, this is gonna. I'm gonna give you one of those terrible answers. You're, you're doing make. it now. Uh, I. The feed in its current form is my dream gig. It's the show where I get to work with people who I adore. Um, I get total creative freedom. Anybody I can convince to sit in front of a camera, I can do. And and we get access to incredible people, which, you know, I don't think SBS would have had before we came along. Mm. Um, and, and really interesting people. And we get to make it look beautiful. I wouldn't be able to do that at the ABC um, simply because I there's too much competition at the ABC. Yeah. If I want to interview... Um, somebody hugely famous, I've got to compete with Lee. Yeah. I've got to compete with um, other people. So being that person at SBS means I, I get that access. So in that sense, it really it really is the best job. I mean, the only things you could ask for are for, you know, an additional 400,000 people to be just ambling around that I end of the spectrum. I thought you were going to say an additional $400,000. <laughs> no, I mean, actually, I mean, I, SBS, I think it's perception that SBS pay garbage. They pay fine. Mm. Like, I don't, like, I have a house. It's not, you yeah, know, it's yeah. not, I'm sure, as big as 15 Whipper's house. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a house and I'm, <laughs> yeah. I live comfortably and yeah. it's, um, uh, yeah, so I, I can't complain about that end of it. I think there's a perception that public broadcasters are paid garbage. I'm, I'm fine. Mm. I mean, admittedly, I have four jobs, but yeah. I'm fine. Mm. Um, but no, it is, it is an incredible job. It took a while to turn it into that. It took me a really long time, even with this one job, to turn it into the job that that I would love. So I'm I'm very satisfied and happy with the job I get to do. I just sometimes wish there was more people that were willing to sample SBS because mm. they should because SBS Vice is a great channel. But surely now with the social with social, yeah. you're not sitting in the, the yeah you're not sitting in the wilderness anymore. No, where... definitely not. But you know sometimes you just wish there's more people. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, is there a big idea that you have yet to get up? Yeah, um, I, I've actually been toying around with um, podcast stuff. Like mm-hmm. I, um, I love radio as a medium and I love talking to people as a medium, but it's been really so exciting seeing the last three years of, of podcasting really change the way people listen to on-demand audio. Mm. And that is so exciting. And, and because I have a background in making sort of very layered, detailed audio um, that was always very ADHD in the form of the Triple J review, I'm really excited to see, to make something maybe like a five-part thing that's still in the realm of popular culture um, but a little bit more expansive and and fun but also sad and and kind of the thing I love about 
podcasting is how intimate it is. Mm. You, right now, listening to this, you have chosen to put this on and you've made it this far into the show. Well done, you. <laughs> um, and there's something very intimate about that. It's yeah. very personal. And, and I think that allows you to do something with the storytelling, with the conversation, with the sound that is unlike radio, where there is an impetus to sort of be tight and bright and you can tune in, you can tune out and all that sort of jazz. I think that is a really exciting frontier to be played with and um, and I think we're all sort of working it out together. I think the medium is actually still quite young realistically mm. uh, and in terms of people proving interesting things you can do with it, I think that's quite young. I think sometimes when people do things that are oral and uh, expansive, they're also often boring yeah. and I think there's a there's – Absolutely, and I, you know me, I'm about strong hooks and yeah, tight, yeah. you know, uh, and then rambling repeatedly. <laughs> but I think there's a way to marriage the um, to the 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 intimacy and the expanse of that the medium affords with some of the discipline that comes from uh, broadcast skills. And I think there is a way, and some shows do it incredibly, but I think there's still new and exciting things that can be done in that space. So yeah, the next thing that I probably want to try will be, I think, in the podcast space for sure. You're, yeah, you're uniquely placed to make the most of this medium that's, that's. I mean, it's already huge, but it's it's continuing to grow. But you also have the background of being able to create great audio. You know, have the broad, yeah, broadcast <laughs> skills like you sort of, yeah, you're placed perfectly to do something there. Um, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Was there anything else? Yeah, I was probably going to be a teacher. Yeah, right. um, That was on my second list of... If I hadn't got into the media degree, I would have done a teaching degree. Uh, primary, secondary, high school, high school, I yeah, been a high school teacher. Yeah. Um, yeah, any particular? What would have been your thing? <sighs> Probably would have ended up teaching drama, um, <laughs> or, or photography. Like my dad was a photographer, All and right. so I grew up around cameras and stuff like that. My mum was a high school teacher; she taught computers. So um, that it, it probably would have been. Um, I get. I mean. Actually, it would have been graphic design, realistically, because mm. that's what I actually was doing straight out of school. And I still am a bit of a design um, wanker. <laughs> um, so it would have been teacher or designer. All right. Uh, and finally, your advice to people wanting to get into the business. There's never been a better time. We have so many more outlets operating in Australia than we had when we were kids. You mm. know, there was no BuzzFeed, there was no HuffPo, there was no, uh, you know, all of these new imprints that are now stepping into the market that weren't there, multi-channels weren't there before, podcasts weren't there before, and the technology and the ability to do it has never been cheaper. Mm. So the, so with that in mind, my advice is make something. Make whatever it is you want to do, write something, make something, put it out in the world, ask for as much feedback as you can get. I know this is ridiculous after the thing I said about the internet being a cesspool of horribleness. <laughs> uh, ask for as much feedback as you can get but because the more you make, the more you have an actionable body of work to go to a content director or an um, executive producer or an agent or whoever it takes. Making things is, is the key to the future. I've lost track of the number of times I've talked to script editors or executive producers or funding bodies who say, oh, yeah, I've just commissioned this new series with some kids that have come from YouTube. Mm. Now, to be fair, a lot of that stuff they've commissioned is garbage. <laughs> but the point is, like, the, the barrier between you and audience has never been thinner. Like, it's the, 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 the thinnest membrane humanly possible. But it's also really unclear how how you will mount success in the future. And so trying things and experimenting and falling into success seems to be um, an increasing way people go. So if you are considering something in the media, find the thing that 
doesn't exist right now that you really wish did exist, whether it's a podcast or a YouTube series or an article, the thing that you wish was out there that you would like to read, that you would like to um, to make, and then make that. Mm. Because if you want it, there's a pretty good chance. And you, if you want it and you can't find it, there's a pretty good chance that um, somebody else will too. And that was what the Triple J review was. I wanted to do a kind of reviewing that I didn't think existed. I wanted to do smart but not highbrow. I wanted to do fun but not a dickhead and put that out on air. And, and that that is that is the mother of all, you know, successes of different scales. The thing that you want to exist that doesn't exist yet Make that. And with that, I feel like I should end with some kind of explosion sound effect. (laughs) (laughs) And and then it falls like a Daft Punk soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, thank you so much for chatting with me. It's been awesome sitting down with you. I really appreciate it. The pleasure has been entirely mine. It's the cheapest therapy I've ever gotten. (laughs) Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thanks so much for listening to my chat with Mark Fennell. What a gem of a human that bloke is, and I cannot wait until he finally releases that podcast idea that he's got locked away in his very creative brain. Next week on the show, I'm chatting to comedian Tommy Little, who is a bloke I didn't know doesn't like talking about himself and his career until we'd already sat down and turned the microphones on and he let me know. Uh, Bless his little cotton socks. He told me he just said yes because he was trying to be nice, but it wasn't a disaster of a chat, which is great. And we talk about how he went from sort of not being on many people's radars to all of a sudden seeming to be on every single television show everywhere. But comedy and media wasn't always his dream. And he talks about what it was he wanted to do when he was a kid. When I was little, it was basketball. Basketball. Oh, I love this. That's okay. all I wanted to do. I was a tiny kid and there was a basketballer who was five foot three in the NBA called Muggsy Bogues. Mm-hmm. And um, he was my idol. And every year for Christmas or, or birthdays, I'd get a different Muggsy Bogues basketball card, <laughs> um, cool. which in hindsight, a Michael Jordan one would have been a lot more valuable today. <laughs> um, that is okay. You're at the trading events going, Muggsy, anyone? Guys, yeah, guys, yeah. I got keeps of Muggsy. Muggsy. Anybody else got a Muggsy? <laughs> That's bullshit. Um, and I, a few things held me back from that, just little things like a, a lack of height, ability, skill, determination, <laughs> dedication, <laughs> those things. Did you even, I mean, were you playing, but you just didn't ever get oh, to the Corbett. level? But the disrespect... <laughs> Is palpable. I feel uh, like you had dreams, but you were just playing basketball in your driveway. Is that what happened? Uh, state schoolboys. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, squad. Oh. Didn't make the team. Uh, Vic Metro, state schoolboys squad. I think probably under 12s that was. And yeah, I got cut from the squad and didn't make the team. And that's probably the pinnacle. Right. Mm. Oh, were you bummed at that time? Uh, yeah. So yep. I, you know, did the natural thing and I kind of gave basketball away. Well, I just started playing less and less. And, um, put my hair into dreadlocks and proceeded to be the greasiest, grossest, pubescent boy ever, I think. Were your parents concerned about you at that point? Nah, because I've got a brilliant situation where my um, my brother, who is a, is a beautiful man, but he's, he's a bit of a mess. Mm. And so 
I'll never. Oh, you're less of a mess. You'll always be less of a mess. Oh, that's helpful, isn't it? It's great. It's great. I hope you'll join me for that chat. A big thank you, as always. If you have left a review in iTunes, shout out to Scott Kilmartin and Julie Jones for your lovely feedback. Uh, The show has done very well in the charts this week, and it is all thanks to you and your support, uh, and I really do appreciate it. So thank you for joining me every week for the show, and I look forward to seeing you back in your ears again next week. (laughs) 